Hello, and welcome to the Revelation to John. My name is J.R. Foresteros, and I am the teaching pastor at Beaver Creek Church of the Nazarene in Dayton, Ohio. You can find me on my blog at jrforesteros.com. And if you have any questions as you go through this podcast, you can email me at jrforesteros at gmail.com. That's jrforesteros at gmail.com. You can also subscribe to this podcast as well as to my sermon podcast by searching for me in iTunes or clicking the link on my blog. To aid you in going through this study, you can also download a couple of different resources, both the PowerPoint slides that I use when I teach and also a note sheet if you like to take notes and they're good things to save for later. You can download both of those things at my blog by searching for the Revelation study and then uh, each note sheet and PowerPoint slide is downloadable from the link on the sermon series engine each week. Finally, a note on the format of this podcast. Uh, I am recording this as I am teaching a class, so you often will not be able to hear some of the comments and feedback that the class members make. I will do my best to say those back into the microphone for the podcast, but in case you don't hear those things, uh, I'm sorry, that's just the nature of the format and my recording limitations. All that said, thanks a lot for listening. I hope that you enjoy the podcast, and without any further ado, here is the Revelation study. Uh, We'll start off with a little bit of review, as usual. So, uh, we began with seven letters to seven churches. They are scattered throughout the near eastern Roman Empire in what is today modern-day Turkey. And it's near the end of the first century. They're living under the Roman Empire, and they're trying to figure out how we stay faithful to God in a culture that doesn't serve God, a culture that's faithless. And so, as we saw as we went through the seven letters, there were different reactions. All of the different churches had different ways of reacting to this tension. Some of them had given into the Roman way and had compromised and were so uh, so Romanized that you couldn't tell that they were really churches anymore. Some of them had taken a really strong, almost legalistic stance against Rome. And then some were so faithful to Jesus that it was actually causing them to be persecuted, and you had kind of everything in between. So Jesus comes to John, who's a prophet who's in exile on a little island called Patmos, and he gives him a revelation of himself and of his character, and that's what we then have begun looking at. So then we went into, and this is actually the section that we're finishing up today, uh, John was caught up into heaven in the spirit, and he was taken into the heavenly throne room, and he saw this amazing... Uh, worship scene where all uh, all of creation was gathered around the one seated on the throne. Everyone was worshiping and all of that. And then right after that, we got this sealed scroll. And if you remember, that caused some problems because the scroll represented God's plan for bringing about his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And it was sealed, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could be found who was worthy to open the seals. And so we spent a good amount of time talking about that that was, the, that was because of sin. Sin is what is keeping God's kingdom from being on earth as it is in heaven. And until sin was dealt with, there wasn't anyone who was worthy to open the scroll. And so John was lamenting that, but then uh, in a very dramatic, nice thing, someone said, look over there, the Lion of Judah has conquered, and he is worthy to open the scroll. But then we turned with John and we looked, and instead we got this weird slaughtered lamb that was standing there instead of a lion. That's going to be important later today. And so we saw that this is a picture of Jesus who conquers by dying. And we talked about the message that that sent to the churches. And then Jesus takes the scroll and worship erupts in heaven. A new song is sung. 
and they praise Jesus for being worthy. And then Jesus starts popping the seals off the scroll. And when he does that, literally all hell breaks loose. And so last time we met a couple of weeks ago, we talked about uh, competing eschatologies. We talked about who really can bring about peace and prosperity and security and human flourishing. Because the Roman Empire, like all empires do, wanted its people to think that Rome could. And so we talked about the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, and how Rome talked about all of that. And then we saw that systematically, as Jesus was popping scrolls off of, or seals off of the scroll, that that was actually attacking and undermining Rome's promises. And Jesus was basically saying, see, you can't actually trust what Rome says. Only God can actually give you safety and security. And so, uh, and when the sixth seal was popped off, there was this big earthquake and all of these, you know, everyone was terrified and they said, who is able to stand the wrath of the lamb and the one seated on the throne? And then we got the answer to that in chapter seven, which was the people of God. Because before all of that began, we got a little flashback scene where the people of God are sealed. They're saved from all of that. And again, that got into another theme that we've seen come up over and over. The people of God are not saved from that earthly initial suffering, not from the first death, but they're promised safety and salvation and rescue from the second death. And so that was where we ended last week, was again with another worship scene in heaven. We saw all of the peoples of God from throughout time and across the world gathered around the throne and worshiping the Lamb and the one who was seated on the throne. And we had one seal left, which, you know, in in the book of Revelation, seven is the number of completion or, or being finished. And so we were just sure that something really cool was going to happen because we had seen these horsemen and these this earthquake and all of this stuff. And then when when the final seal was popped off, nothing happened. So that's where we are today. Uh, we're going to start out, uh, I'll just actually read to you uh, chapter 8, verse 1. Uh, where where we where we left off. When the Lamb opened the seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Now, what's interesting is that throughout the scriptures, the day of the Lord or the time when God's going to come back is called the hour. Jesus even said a few times, the hour is not yet here. And you, there are other scriptures where Paul talks about the hour, and even some of the prophets talk about the hour. And so it's interesting that in Revelation here, what we get in heaven is half an hour, a broken hour an incompleted hour. And so that tells us as readers that this thing that we're all waiting for, even though we thought it was going to come with with the seventh seal, it's not actually here yet. We're going to have to wait a little bit. We thought it was here, but it's not quite here. And again, we're going to see that tension coming up over and over and over. So the question is, if judgment is still to come, if the hour is not finished yet, if we're still waiting, what's going to come next? Obviously, we know there's a lot of revelation left, so we knew that there was going to be some other stuff coming, but what is that? And before we get into that, I want to give you a couple of background ideas that are prevalent in the Hebrew scriptures, uh, what we call the Old Testament, and help us understand what's going to be coming on. So we talk a lot about God as creator, but another concept that's really important that we don't talk about as much in the church today is God as sustainer. And what we mean by that is that God didn't just create everything and then walk away from it. It's not like he wound up a top and then set it up and it's you know spinning and the world's just kind of going and God doesn't have anything to do with it anymore. That is a religious philosophy called deism. Uh, it's something that some people believe, but it's not the, it's not what the, the scriptures teach. And it's not what Christians believe. Christians believe that God is actively sustaining creation, not just that he set it all up, but that even now the reason that uh, the sun keeps burning and the world keeps turning and gravity keeps us down is because God is actively sustaining these things. And if God were not actively acting as the, not only the creator, but also as the sustainer, things would go badly. And we're we're going to see that today. Uh, 
But one of the one of the main ways that the scriptures would think about God as a creator or as a sustainer was through this idea of boundaries. And so uh, in the Old Testament, especially if any of you are very familiar with Genesis 1, we don't have time to read it all, but if you ever want to do that on your own, you can. Here is a picture of kind of the way that the, the ancient Hebrews thought about the world. And you see so you've got the, the heavens and the earth and under the earth. You've got... Uh, You've got the firmament in here with the waters above the heavens and the waters below the, the earth and all of that kind of stuff. And when you read through Genesis 1, you really get the sense that what God is doing is creating order in the middle of chaos. So the, on the first day, God separates light and dark. And then he gives them names. He calls the darkness night and he calls the light day. And on the second day, he separates the waters below from the waters above. And he call, and he calls that space that he makes in the middle of that the sky, the firmament. And then on the third day, he gathers all the waters together and he creates land. And then he calls it land and he calls the water sea. So what God is doing in the act of creating is he's actually organizing and drawing boundaries. And any, are there any, are there any like organized people in here, administrative kind of people? Okay, even those of you who don't will probably understand this. Today, today I walked into my office, and it had been a few days since I had been in my office because I went on a little trip last week, and I couldn't start working until I organized my desk. Like, it had become cluttered with a bunch of stuff, and so I had a bunch of work to do before I could actually get any work done, and that's sort of the idea that's going on in Genesis 1. Like, the, the earth and the creation is all just kind of disordered and chaotic. And what God does in Genesis 1 is he goes about bringing order and putting everything in its right place so that by the sixth day, everything's finished. And God said, this is all very good. And then the seventh day, the Sabbath day, is the day where God gets to rest and enjoy creation with, with us. And so that's kind of the picture of, crea- of creating. The way that God creates is by ordering and, and creating boundaries. And then what sin does is actually begin to eat away at those boundaries and it begins to erode uh, the creation order. And so just a few chapters after Genesis 1, you get to Genesis 6 and humanity has become so evil that God decides to wipe them out. And the way God does that in Genesis 7 is he actually un- I mean, he, he literally uncreates. He opens the floodgates of the heavens and he opens the floodgates under the earth. And essentially, he's like erasing those boundaries that he put in place. And so all those waters rush back into that space that he created and fill it all. And then everything's uncreated. So that by the end of Genesis 7, the world looks just like it did in Genesis 1. Um, and, and everything's uncreated. And so then the receding of the floodwaters is actually like a process of recreating everything. And so the ancient Hebrews understood that sin actually destroys creation. Like sin is working counter to God's creative uh, energies that what we're actually doing and it, and it really starts to make a sort of sense what we're actually doing when we sin is we're saying no god not your way my way i know that you created all this and you set all of this up and that makes you the king like you're the you're sovereign over over all of this but i'm rejecting that and i'm declaring that my way is better and so the hebrews understood that if, if humans get together and do all of that eventually god's going to say well okay go ahead have it see what happens and then, of course, he takes his hands off, and we we are not capable of sustaining creation. We are not, and this is what he says to Job at the end of Job, when he's like, "Job, can you can you tell me how how we turned the sun on? Like, were you the one that flicked that switch? Can you tell me who founded the pillars of the earth? Like, do you know how deep they are? Were you the one that dug all that out and found? I mean, you know, he's going through all this stuff. He's saying, Job, you don't even have the slightest clue how this stuff all holds together." Only I have that power. Only I am capable of that. And it always goes badly, which is what we saw last time we met. It always goes badly when humans think that they're running the show. And so 
This fed into the Hebrew worship. Uh, they understood that the temple was like a mini creation order. It was like a mini cosmos. And if, you, if you've ever read through Exodus, you see like there's there's trees and all of the artwork and stuff like that. And they actually intentionally designed the temple to be like a miniature creation, a miniature world, a miniature cosmos. And it had all of these levels to it and all these layers. And any, again, any of you who've ever read through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, you know how incredibly detailed and ordered and measured every single little piece of the temple was. And it was because this idea of boundaries, this idea of sustaining, creating and sustaining boundaries was so important to how they understand the world. And so when they would be offering sacrifices for their sin, and they would be using the blood to wash some of the uh, some of the furniture in the temples, they were actually symbolically they were cleaning away the stain of sin from creation and they were helping to uh, to maintain and sustain all of those actual created boundaries because they didn't want another kind of situation where God would bring judgment uh, and flooding you know flood he said he would never flood again but um, they said it would be fire next time which again we'll get to in a minute uh, so um, uh, this is also why uh, this is also how unclean stuff worked uh, there's this really brilliant article that came out about 30 years ago because, you know, people always wondered, and, you know, why, why is bacon unclean? Like, anyone who's ever had bacon is like, oh, it's such a good thing. There's nothing wrong with bacon. Um, like, why? Why? Uh, you know, shrimp, why? Uh, but there was a person who observed that actually what, what counts as unclean were these animals that transgressed boundaries. So catfish are unclean because they're fish, but they don't have scales. Sharks also are unclean because they're fish, but they don't have scales. Uh, diff- some of the birds that are unclean are it's because they don't have some of the attributes birds are supposed to have. Uh, pigs have a cloven hoof, but they don't chew cud, and for some reason that was against the boundary because um, cows do and all some of the other cud-chewing animals do. And so there's actually like a, a reason and a rhyme behind this, and it was, again, to symbolically represent that there are certain things that are ordered and certain things that are disordered, certain things that are within boundaries and certain things that are not. Humans were unclean when they crossed boundaries, or especially when their bodies weren't whole, when they weren't bound. So people who were missing limbs or, or mutilated in some way were considered unclean. Uh, women who were experiencing the monthly menstruation cycle, were con- it was considered like a, a, a wound or a hole in the body, like a, something that was unclean. People who, uh, people who were wounded and, you know, all those kinds of things. And so uh, the idea was there's a way it's supposed to be, and whenever that way is... Uh, is ruptured in some way, that person was ceremonially unclean. And and they understood there's nothing evil about pigs and catfish and people who are missing a limb. It's a ceremonial, it's a representative, it's a symbolic thing. It's different from the uncleanness that sin brings. Okay? Um, but it was still all of this all worked together to, to work into this worldview where God had created things a certain way and God had set boundaries in place and it was our job to live in the way that God commanded, to live according to those boundaries and to those ways and to those uh, guidelines. Does that make sense? Okay, that's a whole lot of theology crammed into a very short amount of time. So, what's that? Are we allowed to eat bacon? Yeah, we are. Uh, yeah, that, so this this little picture right here, right? It's Peter. God, this is the best chapter in the whole Bible. God dropped a big sheet down with all of the unclean animals. And he said, Peter, go ahead and eat all of this. And Peter was like... Really? And God's like, yes, trust me, it's good. Uh, no, but th- there's there was this declaring of all things being made being made clean for for us. So, same kind of idea too, right? Where you know Jesus walks around touching all of the unclean things that he's not supposed to touch. He, you know, the woman who had the flow of blood, uh, lepers like all the time, dead bodies. Like, I mean, he just he walked around breaking all of that. And there was actually this 
in the Gospels, there's this really interesting idea that in the Old Testament, the way it was all set up, uncleanliness was contam- would, would contaminate you. And if you were clean and you touched something that was unclean or someone who was unclean, you would be unclean until you had gone through the rituals. And Jesus reverses all of that. And he says, no, when you're living in the power of the Spirit and when you're a part of this new thing that God is doing, your, your cleanliness is what's contagious. So he would touch these unclean people and he would make them clean. And people just didn't know what to do with that, so they crucified him. Uh, so, so yeah. Anyway, so there's there's this whole new thing that's been going on, but the the framework of this this idea of boundaries uh, is what's really important for our discussion for tonight. So you, you still say cleanliness is next to holiness, right? I don't think that's in the Bible, but yeah. <laughs> um, okay, we're ready for the trumpets. Anyone bring a trumpet tonight? I'm just curious. No. Let's Okay, let's read through uh, 2 through 12, chapter 8. I saw seven a- the seven angels who stand before God, and the seven trumpets were given to them. Now another angel with a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given a great quantity of incense to offer the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, the incense uh, uh, that is before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censure and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it onto the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flash of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets made ready to blow them. Okay, so uh, real quick here, pause. We're going to talk about this little censer. There's a couple of things I wanted to point out here. One, um, in, in the seals we had, in the fifth seal, we had the people who are under the altar, the martyrs who are under the altar, and they're crying out, you know, God, how much longer, how much longer, how much longer? And remember, God tells them it's, it's going to be a little bit longer. You have to wait. But here we have the prayers of all of the saints that are going up from earth to heaven, and they're being collected by this angel who has a censure, which if you've ever been to, like, an Orthodox uh, church or anything like that, it's like a thing full of incense they swing back and forth. And has you know burns as little coals in it so that they make it smell really good, and uh, so he has this. And it's actually the the prayers of the saints are like this fragrant aroma to God, and and it actually moves God to act. Um, so it's cool because the action, you know, what we've seen so far is everything that's happening in heaven is causing stuff on earth. We've seen Jesus opening seals and then stuff happening on earth, but here we're actually seeing something that's happening on earth, which is our prayers that are going up and they're actually changing things in heaven. God's responding to His people's prayers. Uh, so, so our prayer, I mean, this, this is a powerful statement. And again, especially if you're in a church that probably has been praying for rescue and for help. This is a powerful statement that your prayers are effective, right? That they're not just bouncing off the ceiling or something like that, but that actually God hears your prayers and that they are effective, that they change reality, that God responds to God's people praying. So thanks. Cool. And then the angel in dramatic fashion takes this, takes these prayers of the saints, these, the censer full of fire and he throws it throws it down to the earth. So now we have trumpets. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there came a hail and fire mixed with blood. And they were hurled to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all of the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea became blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many died from the water because it was made bitter. Then the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, and a third of their light was darkened. A third of the day was kept from shining, and likewise the night. And then I looked. And I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew in mid-heaven. Woe, woe, 
Woe to the inhabitants of the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Okay, so uh, we're going to move through these pretty quick, but you'll notice first we have hail and fire. Now, what's weird about, uh, other than it's weird that fire falls in the sky anyway, right? But this idea that there would be like hot and cold precipitation at the same time doesn't happen. And so if you remember, during the first four seals, we had these four horsemen, and basically everything that we were seeing from them was more or less human human brought on you. It was war, and it was invading armies, and it was famine, and it was all things that were wrought by people. But here there's something bigger going on, because now all of a sudden we have unnatural precipitation falling from the sky, things that are happening that don't ever usually happen. And so it's a sign that the creation is starting to come unraveled. And so then the second trumpet is a mountain that's thrown into the sea. Mountains are often, uh, in the scriptures, used as representations of seats of power. So Jerusalem was often called Mount Zion. And you would see Mount Zion as a shorthand for referring to uh, the temple or to God or to to David's kingdom or something like that. Uh, In Jeremiah chapter 51, uh, Babylon is referred to as a mountain. And so you you often see this where where what it looks like is happening here is empires of the world are being thrown into the seas and all kinds of stuff. The third trumpet is a star that falls to earth. The star is called Wormwood. And in Jeremiah, again, uh, this is Jeremiah chapter 9, uh, wormwood, it's a, it's a, it's a herb, it's a bitter herb, and it can be poisonous if you drink enough of it. Uh, in, in Jeremiah, wormwood is a punishment for idolatry. God says, because you have been unfaithful to me, because you have worshipped Baal, because you have gone against me, I will basically make you drink wormwood. Okay, so it's, it's a punishment from God against God's people for idolatry, which isn't a big surprise that we're finding this here because that's a theme that we've been seeing throughout the book so far. Um, so, and then, and then the last trumpet, dim, or the fourth trumpet, dims all of the heavenly lights, which is a direct reversal of the fourth day of creation, where God puts the sun to rule the day and the moon and the stars to rule the night. And so again, what we're seeing is the slow, un- well, it's not so slow actually, the, the unraveling of the created order, different pieces of creation, things that, things that should be okay are suddenly not being okay. Uh, boundaries are being transgressed. And then we're introduced to the last three trumpets, and they're called woes. Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth as these three angels are about to blow their three trumpets. So, before we move into those, are we good so far? I know we're moving pretty quick, but any questions about the four trumpets? Or the censure full of prayers and incense and fire? Or? Why is it a third? Okay, good question. Yeah, thank you. Uh, anyone remember what the seals, what they destroyed? Yeah, it was a fourth. So, why would it? What, what do you think it is about being about it being a third now? What's that? Yeah, it's more. We're getting a sense of escalation, right? And you'll see that again when we get to the bowls because it's more than. Spoiler alert: it's more than a third. Okay. So, so what we're seeing, you know, you're kind of getting a sense that we've seen all this a little bit before. You know, this this idea of judgment. We had the seven seals where all this stuff was happening. Now we're getting seven trumpets, and it sounds it's not identical, but it's similar. But but it's more now. And so we're getting this sense of escalation as we're moving forward in the vision. Things are getting more intense. There's more on the line. So good, good question. Anything else? We'll keep going to the woes then. All right. This is where it gets weird. Oh, sorry, I forgot. I got all these, all the, all these. There we go. Those are the first four trumpets. Okay. Now, first woe. 
Uh, the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the uh, shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts of the earth, and they were given authority like the authority of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to damage the grass of the earth or any of the green growth or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torture them for five months, but not to kill any of them. And their torture was like the torture of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death, but they will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses equipped for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, and their hair like woman's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth, and they had scales like iron breastplates, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails like scorpions with stingers, and in their tails is the power to harm people for five months. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first one was passed. There are still two to come. All right. Yeah. Demon locusts. Uh, so the first four trumpets were directed at creation. So we had things like the seas and the fresh waters and uh, the earth and the, the things in the sky. But now these next woes are specifically directed against the inhabitants of the earth. And they're specifically directed against people who are non-believers, the people who have not been sealed by God. And that's an interesting observation that's going to come back at the end of the next woe. So the fifth, the fifth trumpet, the first woe, is this plague of locusts, which is actually drawing on Joel. Uh, Joel <coughs> pro- prophesied that a plague of locusts would come. But they're not natural. I, how many of us have seen locusts before? They're not, not like this, right? Okay. <laughs> um, uh, now, what's interesting about the locusts is they represent, would, would, not a trick question, would you guess, is this a clean or an unclean animal? <laughs> yeah, unclean. Obviously unclean, right? Because it transgresses all kinds of boundaries, right? This is this is a, a mash of all kinds of different attributes, and and it's, and it's monstrous and it's terrifying. Um, but even still, even still, even while they're unnatural, we have all these things, and unlike locusts. They don't attack plants, right? That's what locusts do. That's why locusts are so fearsome. It's because they come in and they just eat everything. These specifically do not harm plants. Instead, they attack people. So, so they're, they're, they're totally unnatural. They're definitely outside of the created order. They're definitely something outside of God's intention and God's goodness. Um, but even still, they're limited by God. If you notice all of the passive language that was going on in there, they're, they're permitted to do all of these different things. They're allowed. And even though they're so crazy and weird and unnatural, they still have the normal life cycle of a locust, which is five months. So, there, so there, there's even though they're so far outside of God's creative intentions, they're still limited. They're still bound. And again, this echoes what we heard in Smyrna where God said, you're going to be in prison for 10 days. And we talked about how that means that they don't know how long that's going to be, but it's a limited amount of time. And God does know, and God has set a limit on their suffering and how long that's going to be. And we see that coming back up again here. Even though these things are super scary, uh, God is God is ultimately in control of what's going on and God is keeping things from getting too out of hand if this counts as not too out of hand um, 
the so the other thing about them that we need to notice is that they're led by this demonic presence called Abaddon or Apollyon. In both uh, Greek and Hebrew, it means destroyer or destruction, and it's a word that's particularly associated with the underworld. So, so essentially, what we have, and and this makes sense, right? Because we have we have an angel, a star that, that comes down out of heaven, and it has a key to the bottomless pit. And does anyone remember the last time we saw the key to death in Hades? You might not. It's okay. It was several weeks ago. Uh, Jesus says that he has it in chapter 1. He says, I hold the key to death in Hades. So, so apparently what has happened is that Jesus has given this key to this angel. The angel has come down to the earth and then unlocked this pit, this boundary that God had set in place, apparently. So the idea here is that, again, God is removing even more protection Things that he had set in place, things that he had closed off, things that Jesus had the key to, now are being released. And so Apollyon, Abaddon, destruction, the underworld is rising up and is wreaking havoc on the creation. And of course, of course, there are these kind of monstrous, ungodly things. There there are these things that don't fit into God's creative categories. If you compare them with the four beasts that are worshiping around the throne and the good, rightly ordered creation, these things uh, are way out of bounds. Um, Okay. So we have evil people being destroyed by evil locusts, which are being led by death itself. And all of this is is a result of God's decaying boundaries. right? These things that God set up that are just slowly being eaten away. All right. Any questions about the locusts? We'll move on to the next one. Good. I think they're supposed to be scarier than this picture, but it's the only one I could find. <laughs> Those look sort of like yeah, or circus horses or something. I don't know. Uh, so beginning in verse 13. The sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Again, that language of being bound, right? So the four angels were released who had been held ready for the hour, the day, the month, and the year to kill a third of humankind. The number of the troops of the cavalry was 200 million. In Greek, it's, it's 10 myriads of myriads, uh, which is basically like saying a bajillion gajillion in today's terms. I think that 200, I, I was, couldn't find an exact number, but I think that 200 million is actually more people than were probably alive on the whole earth at this time. Mm-hmm. So if you can imagine... Someone saying today, and in our terms, it would be someone saying like 10 billion, there's an army of 10 billion. It's like, oh my gosh, okay, they could, each of them could kill half of one of us and there'd be not many people left. So, uh, and this was what I, this was how I saw the horses in my vision. The riders wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. The heads of the horses were like lion's heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of humankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. And their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they inflict harm. So, uh, as, as with the locusts in the pit, these are released. This monstrous demonic cavalry was apparently bound beyond the Euphrates, which is where Babylon was. It's also where Parthia was and so again we're drawing on lots of scary images that a first century person would have already known to be afraid of. Um, and these actually, if you look at if you like, if you were to draw it out on your own and ignore my silly picture up here, uh, they actually look a lot like a Greek uh, monster called a chimera, which is uh, basically a mythical beastie. But again, these are unclean. 
So we have more more uh, monstrous. They, they, they're more unnatural, uh, supernatural, demonic uh, things that transgress the creation order. So, so it's more evidence that creation is coming apart at the seams and that what God is essentially doing is, is just taking more and more and more safety limits away. Okay? So the very end of chapter 9 is where we finally get a little bit of an indication of what's going on here. So the last... Bad angels like the other... Oh, they're killing people. Yeah. I mean, they're killing a third of humanity. And and we would guess that they're evil because of the unclean nature of their mounts. I mean, they're, they're, it's... It's it's sort of screaming we're not on God's team because we're we're unnatural we're un we're unclean we're un, we're not good. Is there a third world coming? Uh, it says there is. <laughs> we'll get to it. So the rest of humankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands or give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk. And they did not repent of their murders, or their sorceries, or their fornications, or their thefts. So, why is all of this happening, according to what we just read? Okay, sure, but I guess, let me ask it this way. What's the hope, and in, in why is God permitting all of these things? Why is God allowing all of these things? Why is God unlocking the pit? Why is God releasing the angels of the Euphrates? Trying to save the people, really. Why? How? By showing them what the terrible things that sin can bring on you, and therefore, you, 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 when you sin, you earn a wage, just like when you work. When you sin, you earn a wage from God, and that is some type of judgment. Yes. And so that's. And so God's saying, "Here you go." Yeah. Right. Either me or you will suffer. Yeah, so, 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 so the big question that the Revelation is making us ask is how does God defeat sin? Does God simply destroy sinners? No. Not really. no. He destroys them, but I mean, but he, at the same time he's destroying them, he's trying to actually get them to understand right. their predicament, right. which they refuse to. Right. And that's the reason why they may die. So the question is, is, is God the lion of Judah or the slaughtered lamb? Yes. Is, is, is God, and this, this is where we're getting into it, are you, are you with God or are you with Rome? Because the way Rome rules is through coercion, through fear, through intimidation, and ultimately, if it comes to it, through death. And that's what crucifixion is, is it's sort of Rome's ultimate weapon. It's their doomsday device. And so, is God going to rule the same way Rome does? Or does God rule a different way, a better way? And th- we know we know what Jesus did, right? I mean, this is Jesus' conversation with Pilate in John chapter 19, where Pilate says, are you a king or not? And Jesus is like, look, man, if I was a king, like you're a king, I'd just raise up an army and come kick you out of, come kick you out of Jerusalem. Like if, that, if, if I was the kind of king that you think I am, that's what I would do. But I'm not that kind of king. And that's not who my followers are. My kingdom is not of this world. Doesn't work the way your kingdom does, and we see that in John chapter five or in Revelation chapter five, when no one is worthy to open the scroll, and John begins to lament, and then the elder says, "Look, there comes the Lion of Judah conquering," 
And instead of a big scary lion, we get a slaughtered lamb. And we go, oh. Okay, this this king rules through lamb power. This king rules by dying. This king defeats death by dying. And so the question that we ask as we are getting into this part of Revelation is, is Jesus really a faithful and true witness of who God is? When we look at Jesus, are we really seeing the character of God? And we would say yes, we hope so, we think so, that's what the scriptures tell us. But if that's true, then how does God love sin to death? How does God use lamb power to overcome sin? And and we just started to see that. Well, we, we get the beginnings of the answer right here. God says, okay, you want to you see what happens when you get your way? You want to see what happens when I let you be king of the world? You want to see what happens when I step back and take my hand off the wheel and you get to have a go at it? Here's what happens. I'm going to do it just a little bit at a time. I'm going to take away one thing here. I'm going to take away another little thing here. I'm going to take away another thing here. And it keeps getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And you would think that at some point, people would throw their hands up and go, Whoa! Someone else better take over. I can't do this. Everything that we are doing is just making things worse. We need someone to save us. But they don't. They don't repent of any of it. They continue in their idolatry. They continue with these gods that they've made for themselves. And we get depressed. But it's a real, I mean, it's a real, I, this is a real feeling, right? I mean, have, have you never looked around at the world and been like, man, I just don't, I just don't know. What are they doing? Yeah. Well, and what's it going to take? Like, yeah. or, or with a particular loved one who you just cannot get it through their head that the choices that they are making are what are causing their predicaments. And you think, surely this is rock bottom. Surely. Surely this is what it's going to take. It, I mean, I, how much worse can it get? And then it gets worse. You're like, okay, well, this time. And then it gets worse. And, and, and that, that sense of despair that you feel is a small, tiny fragment of the, the mourning that God goes through over our sin. God says, you, don't, you must not know what this does to you. You must not understand the path that you're headed down. You must not understand that the only reason that you're not dead and gone is because I am sustaining you. And that my grace is present and active and, and, and I'm trying to rescue you even now, even when you're rebelling against me. But you won't, you won't see that. So maybe I'm going to start taking my hand away just a little bit at a time. Maybe I'm going to let you see the, what you, I'm going to let you see what you're really asking for. But it's not working. And so by the time we get to the end of the seven, of the, the six trumpets and the two woes, we're wondering, well, is anything? Is anything going to work? Is there any way to tell the world that they're headed to hell in a handbasket? Is there any way to convince them that there is something better, that there is a, a, an alternative, that there is rescue from all of this? And then instead of the seventh trumpet, we get another pause to answer that question. Oh, I forgot. Land power. There we go. Okay. So, chapter 10. I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun, 
and his head, his uh, and his legs like pillars of fire. He held a little scroll open in his hand, setting his right foot on the sea and the left foot on the land. He gave a great shout like a lion roaring. When he shouted, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write what I heard from the heaven saying, or when I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and the land raised his right hand to the heavens and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it and the earth and what is in it and the sea is what is in it. There will be no more delay. But the days when the seventh angel is to blow his trumpet, the mystery of God will be fulfilled as he announced to his servant, the prophets. Then a voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him <laughs> told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will be bitter in your stomach, but sweet as, hunger, as honey in your mouth. So I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. Then they said to me, You must prophesy against uh, again about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So, we're expecting the seventh trumpet, we're expecting the third woe, we're expecting some kind of end of something again. But instead we get this pause, which is actually similar, if you remember, right after the sixth seal when we had the big earthquake, we got another weird pause where we had to go and find out who got sealed. And so we got this picture of the church before we got to the the seventh seal. It's the same kind of pause here. So an angel descends from heaven to earth, and he's holding the scroll. Now, when's the last time we saw the scroll? The lamb had it, right? And he he was unsealing it, and he had finished unsealing it. And now, so now we're seeing this open scroll ready to be read. And what is on this scroll? Yeah, it's the, it's the plan for the end, right? It's the will of God. It's heaven becoming earth. All of this, it's, it's the end of all things. And so, this mighty angel is bringing God's will to earth, which we've been saying all this time. And so he stands on the earth and on the sea. What might you imagine that that would represent? Everything. Yeah, yeah, everything, right? This is applies, applies universally, which again, we're not surprised about, but... And his announcement is a lion's roar, which is a nice thing uh, Nice thing he's borrowing from Amos. It says, The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Okay, so in Amos, which we're actually preaching through in November on Sundays, uh, God is pictured as a lion, and his roar is a roar of judgment going, ac- going out across the earth. And so John is borrowing that here for this angel that descends from heaven with the will of God. And he roars out God's judgment across all of the earth. But remember in Revelation, lions are lambs. So we're going to be asking still, yet again, how does this lion that is a lamb enact judgment? What does it look like? And so we get this weird, this, this weird little thing where seven thunders, thunder, and then John's about to write it down because he got told earlier, write everything down. So he was doing a good job so far. So he's continuing to do a good job. And then they're like, oh, don't. Don't actually write that down. So we don't have any idea what the thunder said. Okay? And it's funny if you read commentaries, like they all have theories about what the thunder said. I don't, I don't know why they would think we could figure that out if God didn't want us to know. But uh, the, why they were sealed up and all this kind of stuff. And uh, we really don't know for sure. But I found one provocative suggestion that I really liked. 
Um, the series of seven, and we haven't gotten into seven bowls yet, but the series of seven in the Revelation are these series of judgments. Seal judgments, trumpet judgments, bowl judgments. What if these were thunder judgments and they were going to be passed down upon the earth, but we've just seen the judgments aren't working, right? Those are not things that are actually communicating to people rescue and redemption and hope. They're not listening to these judgments. And we're about to see that God has a different strategy in mind, a different way to tell people what's going on. And so this could be like a little indication that like, okay, we're going to put the sevens away for a while. We're going to try something different. I don't know. Maybe that's not it, but it could be. So the this is great. The angel swears that there will be no more delay. He's like, I promise by the one who is and lives forever and created all this stuff, no more delay. Which when we got when we were under the altar with the martyrs in CO five, there was like delay. Don't worry, it's going to be a little while. Now no more delay. Except again, you're thinking, well, we still got a lot of book left, so I'm suspicious. Um, <laughs> so, but again, it's that tension. It's like it's here, but it's not quite here. But it's here, but it's not quite here. But it's here, but eh, it's not quite here. And we've been seeing that so far, and it's. It, don't worry, that'll continue. Uh, so the angel brings the scroll, and he encounters John, which is interesting, because last we knew John was in heaven, but apparently now he's back down on earth. And the angel commands John to eat the scroll. Now, this is a this is an Old Testament thing. He's borrowing from Ezekiel. Ezekiel, when he received his prophetic call, the way he received his call was God gave him a scroll, and he had to eat it, and it was sweet in his mouth, and it was bitter in his stomach. So it's, it's exactly what Ezekiel did. But what's fascinating is that we know what is in this scroll. We know that this is the end. We know that this is the the royal announcement that God is taking his creation back. And that there's one right way that leads to life and a bunch of wrong ways that lead to death. And you don't have much time left to get it figured out. We know that that's what the scroll's about. Because we've been seeing it happen. We've been journeying with John through this. And so what does it mean that John is required to eat this scroll? Has anyone ever seen that in Ezekiel or know what that's about? Or you can guess, probably. Anyone want to take a guess? He's he's supposed to make it a part of himself. It's supposed to become his prophecy, his word. When Ezekiel had to eat the scroll, it became his message that God required him to deliver. And why would it be sweet in his mouth but bitter in his stomach? What do you think that means? easy for him to get, but it's going to be hard. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine how awesome it is? Oh, hopefully you guys are having fun in here even, right? We're just, we're reading after the fact and studying and enjoying, spending time in the, in the Word of God, letting it saturate into our souls, letting it conform us more to the image. Like, it's sweet, it's good, it's, 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 a, it's a wonderful thing to be able to participate in. But, then you got to do something about it. Right? Like James says, anyone who's just a hearer of the word and doesn't do what it says. And we have seen the message so far, and we know what it would mean to proclaim that to the world, and it's going to be bitter. It's not going to be fun. And we're actually about to see how not fun it is. So. Oh yeah, I got some nice little wood cuttings there. So this is uh, this is William Blake, uh, the the far one, and you see the feet on fire and everything. And then here, this is Albert Durer, who is a German wood carver. He has a bunch, he like loved Revelation, so there's whole books of his wood carvings. But it's like the angels like shoving the scroll in John's mouth. I just thought it was funny. It's like, oh okay, didn't imagine that was how it would go down, but all right. So, all right. So, any questions about chapter ten? 
We're going to have so much time for application. I'm so excited. Okay, good. Chapter 11 then. Then I was given a measuring rod, like a staff, and I was told, come and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave it out. For it was given over to the nations, uh, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Okay. So, um, it's probably not a big surprise to think, especially in the first century when these people were hearing this for the first time, that if they were going to bear witness to God, and if they were going to communicate about God's judgment, they were going to be persecuted. Like, that was a no-brainer. And a couple of the churches were already experiencing that. Um, and so what we're finding in chapter 11 is not only a picture of the church's prophetic call, our, our call to bear witness to this, but we're also seeing a picture of God's promises through this. And it's, it's themes we've already seen in Revelation, but it just, it's, it's again reaffirmed to us in a new way. So um, John, John is told to measure the temple. And again, there are some Old Testament prophets that were given the same task Ezekiel had to do it and Zechariah had to do it. And to measure the temple is actually to begin the process of rebuilding the temple. You're actually re-establishing the boundary lines of the temple. And because the temple was a miniature representation of creation, again, you're, you're basically joining in the creative work of God. You're actually trying to help maintain the created order. And so, again, the church is working with God against the destructive forces of sin and death. And John is actually having a role in this the same way that Ezekiel and Zechariah did. Now, Ezekiel and Zechariah were both prophesying during the exile after Babylon had destroyed the first temple. John is living in the wake of the destruction of the second temple, which happened in 70. So this is probably about a generation ago. He may or may not have even been born yet. And uh, they're all looking forward to God reestablishing the temple. Right, and so so Ezekiel and Zechariah were looking forward to the to the second temple that, that Ezra and Nehemiah built, but uh, John is looking forward to this new heavenly temple. And what's really cool is in the New Testament, um, Jesus Himself is the temple. So in John, when he says he's gonna, he says this, the temple's gonna get torn down, and everyone's like, "Whoa, dude, are you like threatening vandalism?" And he goes, "I mean, tear this temple down in three days, and I'll raise it back up." And they're like. Who's going to rebuild the temple in three days? And then John helpfully tells us he wasn't talking about the temple. He was talking about his body and the death and resurrection. We're like, oh, okay. But throughout, especially the Gospel of John, Jesus understands himself as the true temple of God, the true place where heaven and earth come together, the true mediator between God and humanity. Right, And then the New Testament takes that theme. Paul especially takes that theme and runs with it. And he understands, he says, well, if Jesus is the true temple and the church is the body of Christ then that means that the church is the temple of God. The church is that meeting place between heaven and earth. The church is the mediator between God and humanity. And so there's actually quite a few passages throughout the New Testament that refer to believers uh, as as a temple. So, um, so for John to measure the temple, he's actually uh, he's actually enacting a promise that God is going to preserve the church. That this space will be preserved, but not the whole space, because he says the outer courts are going to be given over to the Gentiles, and they'll be trampled for, for what is it, 42 months? Is that the months one here? Yeah. Which is three and a half years, which is that half of the fullness of time. All right, kind of like you saw the broken hour at the beginning. Here's the broken half time. And so we see this again. Is the whole church going to be wiped from the face of the earth? No. God will preserve the church. 
But does that mean that no one in the church will suffer? No. In fact, we've already seen in the book of Revelation, churches are suffering. And we saw from John that this bitter message is going to well up inside of them. And they will be facing pain. But, the promises that he made to the church is clear back at the beginning. If you are faithful, you will be spared the second death. Right? So even, even no matter what happens during this measuring of the temple thing, no matter what happens during this time of being a prophetic voice, no matter what happens during living faithfully in the midst of a faithful culture, if you are faithful to God, God is faithful to you. And God will preserve you and protect you from the second death, not necessarily from the first death. Good on measuring the temple? All right, two witnesses. Then that'll be it, and then we can slow down, take a few deep breaths, and talk about what does this all mean to us. And, verse 3, I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1,260 days. Anyone anyone do math real quick? Tell me how long that is. Three and a half half years. Yep, very good. (laughs) So, again, the same number is coming up. Uh, And uh, they're prophesying wearing sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. Anyone who wants to harm them must be killed in this manner. They have authority to shut the sky so that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the authority over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is prophetically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, members of the members of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And the inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and celebrate and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to the inhabitants of the earth. But... After the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and those who saw them were terrified. They heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. At that moment, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God in heaven. The second woe has passed. The third is coming very soon. All right, so this is one of those super fun passages where everyone has lots of theories and opinions. So I'm going to help you work through it as best as we can, again, trying to keep ourselves in the mindset of those uh, first century people. So um, they prophesied for the same amount of time, three and a half years, that the temple was measured, or that the, the outer courts are going to be, going to be um, trampled, and they wear sackcloth, which traditionally in the Old Testament was a sign of repentance. So if you had done something and you wanted to repent, you would just put on sackcloth. And as long as you were wearing the sackcloth, uh, it was understood that you were in a season of repentance in your life. So um, they they are they represent the church. We know that because there's two of them. And John is drawing on Zechariah 4, uh, which is where we find uh, the last time we find olive trees and lampstands and all of that stuff. And in Zechariah 4, they're to represent the, the messengers of God. And so here again we have uh, these two people, olive trees, lampstands, which John told us at the very beginning represented churches, right? So uh, I think I want to pause for just a second on this idea of sackcloth. So what you have is this picture of the church, which is 
prophesying to the world. And and what are they prophesying, if you had to take a guess? Well, I mean, what what did we just do in chapter 10? We just had the whole thing with the little scroll, right? And John having to eat this and be, be that, that prophetic message. So we have this idea that, that the church is to to bear that message out, right? To to prophesy about God's way and God's coming judgment and all of this kind of stuff. And it's interesting that the posture that they take is not one of triumphalism. It's not one of superiority. It's not one of gloating. It's one of repentance. Where they say, look, the, the same thing that we are calling you out of is the same thing that we were in. We're not better than you. We're not different from you. The only difference between us and you is that we figured it out already. And now we're inviting you to figure it out with us. We're inviting you into this repentance with us. It's not based on some kind of strength on our part. It's not based on some sort of special character trait that God's like, oh, those people, I just love them. They're great. It's not about that. It has everything to do with our weakness and our inability to rescue ourselves. So we repent, sackcloth and ashes. And that's the, that's the character of their message. That's the character of their prophesying. Uh, so let's go through their story. Let's take a, a, let's take a zoomed out perspective. Oh yeah, sorry. I keep forgetting. Um, and tell me if you recognize the basic plot of the witnesses' story. So they have this prophetic ministry for about three years where they're doing lots of miracles and they're enjoying wild success. And then they come to Jerusalem and they get killed. And they're dead for about three days. And then they're resurrected and then they ascend into heaven. Does that sound like a story that you know? <laughs> it's what, Mike? Yeah, that's Jesus' story, right? So what we're seeing here is the church being called to live out Jesus' story, right? And while we have work to do, while we have a ministry, we will enjoy wild success being protected by the power of God. I mean, they're doing all these miracles. They're drawing on stuff from the pit. You have echoes of Elijah. You have echoes of Moses, right? All raining all these plagues down, shutting up the skies. I don't think anyone would spit fire, but uh, I read one commentator who pointed out that the fire is coming out of their mouths, and if they are indeed prophesying the word of God, uh, there are scriptures that talk about the word of God as a consuming fire, and so it could even be that John is intending us to understand that it's it's the power of God's word itself that is protecting the church, which which I think is cool. It's cool. Um, but then, when their testimony is finished, when it's completed, they are killed by this beast that came out of nowhere, right? Just popped its head up out of the abyss and killed them, and then is gone again. We don't see it again for another couple chapters. So we get a little bit of foreshadowing there. <laughs> And then I find fascinating the reaction of the world to these the death of these prophets. You know, they're rejoicing. They, they've turned it into a holiday. They're, they're exchanging gifts, you know, because they're so excited that this thorn in their flesh is dead. 
They're so excited they don't have to listen to it anymore. They don't have to have their noses rubbed in their sin. So we're really even sort of getting some of the echoes of what we saw at the end of chapter 9, right? Where even despite all of the, uh, all of the plagues, people were not repenting. And then, of course, uh, the, the message that we've been seeing from the beginning, even church, even if you are killed, you will be resurrected and God will take you into heaven. So we're seeing that same message being reaffirmed. Same one that we saw when John measured the temple. Same one that we saw uh, with the seals. Same that we saw with the martyrs under the altar. Um, so I I want to read, I think I read this last time, but I think, it, again, it's just really appropriate. And it, uh, some of Paul's words echo uh, what, what John is saying here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, Paul says, We have this treasure in clay jars, so that it may, may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying around in the body of death, in the body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our bodies. For while we live, we are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be made visible in our mortal flesh. This is the message of Paul. This is the message of Revelation. This is what Jesus meant when he said, if any of you would follow me, you have to pick up your cross and come with me. That our story, we, don't, we are not actually like creating our own destiny. We're not actually like charting out some kind of new course into the future. Uh, we are called to do what Jesus did. We are called to live the life that Jesus lived. We are called to, uh, to engage the world and to engage the powers the way that Jesus engaged the world and Jesus engaged the powers. And when we do that, there is a certain script that it is going to follow. And we don't need to be afraid of that. We don't need to worry about that. We don't need to uh, fear that. Because ultimately, no matter how our lives end up here, we have the hope of the resurrection. And we know that, that if we remain faithful, that God will restore us and will redeem us and will resurrect us. Questions about the two witnesses? Are you ready for the end? Mike, go ahead. So, where is this great city? Where is it? What does it sound like? Sodom. Well, it's, it's, it's symbolically, right? John says symbolically it's called Sodom and Egypt. But where is it? It's the city where their Lord was also crucified. Yeah. John does some wonky things with sacred geography. He, he sort of, John sort of has two cities and two rivers. There's the New Jerusalem and the River of Life, and then there's the Great City, which is sometimes Jerusalem, sometimes Babylon, sometimes Egypt, sometimes Sodom. It's like, it's like the, it, again, it basically, it's sometimes Rome. It's, it's, you're either in the place where God is on the throne, or you're in all of the pretenders. Right? And, and John can do that in his symbolic worldview. And all of these places can be those things. I mean, it's hard... Would you want to be the guy that was in charge of Jerusalem when you killed God? I mean, like, like God came to town and you killed him? You know, like, can you get more not in God's way than that? Like, no. So, so Jerusalem was that, obviously, when Christ was killed. But so was Babylon. So was Sodom. So was Rome. So was Egypt. And we could keep at Nineveh. 
We can keep stacking capitals on top of it. But John's favorite favorite term for that human city is Babylon, but he called yeah, when we were seeing it, calls it some other stuff too. Good, any other questions? Alright. Then let's let's read the end. Now, here we go. Uh, a little preface before we read this. We're expecting a final trumpet. We're also expecting a third woe. Now, what was the first four trumpets were the unmaking of creation. The first woe was what? The demon locusts. The second woe was the 200 million monstrous demonic cavalry. So what is this third woe going to be? Like how much more terrifying and horrible? Right? Well, here we go. Let's read it. 15, 11, 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Then the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, singing, We give thanks, we give you thanks, Lord God Almighty, who are and who were. Anything, anyone notice anything weird about, that, uh, weird about that phrasing right there? Anyone know what they usually call God when they're worshiping? When they're talking about time, they say, they say you're... you're or they say you are who was and who is and who is to come. And here, what do they say? Yeah. What's the implication there? He's come. There's no, this is it. There's no future thing. We're done. We give thanks to you, Lord, God Almighty, who are and who were. For you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath has come. And the time for judging the dead, for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and all who feel your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroyed the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. And the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. And there were flashes of lightning and rumbles, peals of thunder and earthquake and heavy hail. Now, that doesn't sound so bad, does it? <laughs> Why is this the third woe? Time's up. Yeah. I mean, this is it. You're done. Time for judgment is here. The resurrection of the dead is here. Time to destroy those who destroyed the earth. It's here. You're out of time. What really got me was the last verse. Why? The Ark of the Covenant. Why? Well, because it's been lost for years. Nobody knows where it's at. Exactly. But it must be in heaven. Yes. According to this. That, that amazed me when I seen that. You recognize what it was really saying. Yeah, so the Ark's been lost since the Babylonian exile, 586 B.C., and the Ark was, uh, so I, I pulled up any of you who are Raiders of the Lost Ark fans. Uh, we don't actually know exactly what the Ark looked like, but this is a pretty good approximation. There were these two things on top. Uh, this little, um, let me turn my laser pointer on. Uh, this little uh, this little thing right here with these two, they were cherubim. We don't know what a cherubim looked like, which is why we can't 
uh, I guess a cherub looked like, but these two cherubim on top, and this lid formed what's often called the mercy seat. You've probably heard that before. And so the ark sat in the middle of the temple in the holiest place, which also represented in the, in the kind of ark as a creation, it represented like heaven. And then the physical presence of God on earth, which was called the Shekinah glory of God, actually lived over the mercy seat. Okay? So that was why when they carried the ark into battle, uh, you couldn't, it couldn't be beat, which is why Hitler wanted it, uh, in Indiana Jones. Um, and so, uh, it was lost when the Babylonians destroyed the temple in 586, and no one has seen it since. There's some, uh, theories about where it might be, but no one knows where it is. And so the Jewish people, had had a hope, even going back to probably 585, uh, that the ark would reappear at the end of time. Because when God, when, when heaven becomes earth and God dwells with his people, the ark will be the physical presence of God on earth. I mean, that, that's what we're waiting for. And so the reappearance of the ark, you're right to say, that, oh, that, that, like, this is it. This is a big, big, big deal. This is awesome. Right? Uh, so again, you have, you have the worship, you have the, the song breaking out, you have it's time for all of this, everything is over. The seventh trumpet is sounded, uh, the, the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God. There's nothing left to do. That's weird though, right? Because we've still got 13 chapters left. <laughs> so, so this is the end. And it's the end of a major section. And what we've seen here are some important things. Okay, We've seen that there are two ways to live in the world. There's God's way and Rome's way. Right? There's God's promise of what is going to bring us fulfillment and peace and wholeness. And then there's Rome's promise about what's going to bring us peace and fulfillment and wholeness. And these churches are caught in between that. And they can't they're, they're having trouble negotiating this because it sure seems like from their perspective where they are, Rome is winning the day. So John gets to take them behind the veil of reality and have a peek at Oz the Great and Powerful and see that, it, that actually, if you see what's really going on behind the scenes, it's not worth compromising. It's just not. Because where Rome's going to take you is nowhere good. And what's going to happen as creation comes to a close and as the kingdom of God begins to descend is God is going to start taking his hand away and creation is going to be unmade as he gives people license to, to, to do what they want with their sin, to let their sin run wild, and it's going to get ugly. So why would you want to be a part of that? Why would you sacrifice a little bit of comfort now if you know that that's where it's going to take you? Can't you hold on just a little bit longer? Can't you be faithful just a little bit longer? Can't you, in fact, maybe even, beyond just holding on, beyond just staying faithful, can't you maybe even take up that prophetic mantle and be a voice that's warning people that the life that they're choosing to live isn't taking them anywhere good? And not a voice of triumphalism, not a like, ha, see, you got what you deserved, but a voice of repentance, of saying, look, I know, I know how tempting it is. I know that it seems like that's going to be a really good decision, but in the long run, it's not going to take you anywhere. I know that. I know that because I've been there too. And I can, I can tell you that there's something better. And it's this other way. It's this way that we were actually created to live. It's this way that is actually for us. 
So there's there's the throne room vision. That's chapters 4 through 11. And we see how God brought all of that to an end. So next week, we're going to begin a new series of visions. And we're going to look more, or we're going to, we're going to look at all of the same themes. And we're just kind of going to turn and go from a different camera angle, from a different aspect. So, okay, we're, we have about 15 minutes left for application. But are there any questions about all of that? That was, we did a whole bunch in not very much time. So I know that, I know that we're all kind of catching our breath. But are there any, any questions before we move into talking about a little bit of application? I was just thinking uh, while all this was going on, uh, I think it, it, I cannot remember what's that in the Bible, but it says something about when God is showing us all these things uh, going to come up on us for on, on sinfulness. He says something about if He did not stop it, which is what I thought sort of maybe the thunders were about, that. Mankind yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that might actually be coming in a few more chapters. I think so. But I know, I know, I know what you're speaking about, and I'm not. That might also be Jesus or Paul. Uh, also, I'm not, we we have to maybe have to look that up. But yeah, you're right. I mean, that's exactly right. And that's. I mean, if you go back and look at the flood narrative, God essentially didn't stop it. Right? God let it go, and what happened? Everyone but one little family and two of everything else was saved. So, so that's exactly right. That's what that's what's at stake. Good, very good. Anything else? Other comments? Other thoughts? Okay, let's talk about application then. Uh, so I have, uh, I think I have, yeah, I have the questions on your sheets there. If you guys want to kind of break into a couple little groups real quick. Um, first, what implications does an ordered creation have for the seven churches? And then what about here in Beaver Creek? What does that have? What does that say for us? Um, what does lamb power look like for the seven churches? How are they supposed to imitate Christ faithfully in their context? And then again, what does that look like here in Beaver Creek? And then what what is our prophetic call here? Uh, again, we can we can maybe skip over the seven churches for that one. Specifically, I'm interested in beginning to dissect. What does it look like for us to be faithful witnesses to the gospel? This gospel that we're exploring in Revelation. What does it look like for us to do that here in Beaver Creek, Ohio, in the last quarter of 2012? So, uh, break into groups. I'll give you about uh, six or seven minutes to talk about that, and then we will come back together and uh, discuss what you have said. Okay. What are some of the... Yeah, yeah. What are some of the implications? Uh, what are some of the implications of an ordered creation for us here in Beaver Creek? I hate breaking up your guys' conversations. They're so good. But we're running out of time. What are some of the implications of an ordered creation, of saying that there is an order or a way of creation for us here in Beaver Creek? I think you have to say there's a right and wrong. Okay. I mean, we we got to stand up and say that, but the world says there's no such thing. Mm-hmm. Everything's relative and there's no right and wrong. Mm-hmm. You also have to say God's creator. Yep. You know, a lot of people out there say, oh, it's evolution. There's, you know, we can talk about God being a creator. Um, I thought of it a little more personally, and it made me, like, I was thinking about Sabbath and how, like, um, in God's creation, there's 
a time set a, like in my time there's supposed to be time set aside for rest which is a boundary that is that God created and when I try to take over my life and be in control of it and not pay attention to his boundaries then I lose that ordered mm-hmm. peace for my life yeah I would say if there were if I was shooting from the hip and I were thinking about God's created order in our way, I would land in suburbia particularly. We don't do ordered time very well. We fill our schedules to bursting, uh, to to the point of nervous breakdown. And uh, we don't give ourselves space to be, to like to live. I hate to say, but like be a human being, not a human doing. I mean, we weren't, we weren't created to do all the time. Right? We were created to work all the time. In fact, if the scriptures are clear over and over and over again, God says, no, no, no. You actually are supposed to carve out this time where you don't work, where you enjoy, where you play, where you spend time with your family. Go back to the companies. Absolutely. You're well, sure. Oh, abs- I, listen, I, I understand that. I agree. But, but materialism is partly to blame, I, too. I mean, yeah. did, how many people have two jobs? I had two jobs for a while. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, so at some point, and again, like we can pick on, you know, we can pick on this. I think, I think because we live in suburbia and because we are all in this particular culture, this is a particular thing that we don't do very well. If we were in a different culture, there'd be something else. The, the Latino culture does Sabbath super well. They do it every day. They call it fiesta or siesta and it's beautiful. I'm super jealous. Um, you know, so the Latino culture would have other things that they don't order very well. Um, but I think that's something that's particularly as again not any one of us, but as a whole culture that we don't do very well. And I think that it's been going on long enough that we're starting to see the really detrimental effects on families. You know, because that happens. I so. think we progressed to be that way, though. Sure. I mean, oh yeah. Many years ago, it was not. Oh no, we didn't just flip a switch, right? And all of a sudden, that was how it was. No, it's it's the slow creep. And you wonder if we don't, if someone in Santa would be like, yeah, eh. Anyone else think this is just totally crazy? Yeah. We got to wonder, like, in ten more years, twenty more years, what's it going to be like? Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to all we're going to have like three personal citizens to manage our families while we're doing all, all the rest of the stuff. You know, so good. See, and that was just one little implication. What about land power? What does land power look like in Beaver Creek for us? Us who follow the land that was slain. Okay. How so? What, uh, tell me a little bit about that. Super awkward, yeah. Yeah. Loving your neighbor. What else? What else? What does some of you guys talk about? Land power in Beaver Creek. I think it's like being servants and, you know, all the programs we have to help the community. And, um, we were talking about that in the Beaver Creek and dating uh, ministry. Target dating. Target. Yeah. Cafe. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the urban ministry in mm-hmm. Africa, mm-hmm. where we've been to Nigeria, and before that was in Kansas City, then we went to Michigan this year, we were just always yeah. trying to put forth God's image before the world. Good. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a lot of it. You know, I think if, uh, you know, for me, where land power hits home is like, just in the way I personally live out, you know, when I get into a, an argument or a conflict with my wife, 
when someone cuts me off in traffic, when, you know, when I'm in a hurry and I'm in a long line and the person at the counter doesn't seem to understand that other people have a schedule to keep. You know, that's, that's when I really start to think, am I, am I more like a lion or like a lamb? And I tend, I tend towards lion. <laughs> um, and these are the things, like just what you said, and it's a good check. What image am I presenting to the world right now? Am I really imaging the lamb that was slain? Or am I imaging something else? And and it, it's that's hard when you really take it all the way down to that level and say, okay, I got to think about that every day, sort of witness that, that word that I'm speaking, the word that I'm living, right? Okay, we're out of time. I want to respect your time. Uh, so next week... We are going to be reading chapter 12, so we're only doing one chapter next week. So easy. Super easy. Uh, so again, when you read through it, what's happening here? How many of the characters can you identify? It'll actually be easier than you think this week. Some of them are even just given to you straight up, so that's fun. Uh, try to read through it a few times and focus again not on the things that are confusing. Focus on the things that are clear, okay, because there will be things that are clear. And then... If you want a lot of fun, if you're just super bored and don't have enough Bible study to do this week, uh, see if you can figure out all of the things that the Bible actually says about the devil. Because that's the devil is one of our main characters next week. He enters into our story in a big way. So we're going to spend a lot of time talking about all of the things that the Bible does and doesn't actually say about him. So, uh, so this is the same story told from different angles. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, yep. And you're going to see that. You're going to actually see, um, as you read through chapter 12, you'll be able to, even though a lot of it's happening in heaven, you're actually going to be able to locate the story that's happening there in a specific point in, in, in a timeline of history because of some of the things that are happening. And you'll see that it's actually all before what we've just talked about here. Okay, so that it'll, it'll, it'll be interesting. It, 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 chapter 12 is one of my... They're all my favorite chapters, but chapter 12 is one of my favorite, favorite chapters. Uh, and it's, it's especially one of the fun ones to teach and to, to talk about together. So we're going to have a lot of fun next week. Um, tell all your friends that, that skipped this week that, that they shouldn't miss. So um, let's, let's pray together, and then we can all uh, take off. God, thank you so much uh, for allowing us to gather and to study your scriptures. And we just pray that this week we would seriously... Uh, take to heart, even though we did not rip chapter 10 out of our Bibles and eat them, uh, that you have given us a prophetic call, that we have begun to digest this word. And even though it's sweet when we're in here, even though it is so fun to open the scriptures and to talk about uh, the things of your kingdom and what it means to participate, even though it's so fun in here, we know that when we get out into the world, it's going to be bitter in our stomachs because we live in a world that is not following your way, that is not keeping up your boundaries. And the only reason that the world has not fallen apart is because you are gracious to continue to sustain, to sustain us. But we understand that that sin is real and that it has a real penalty. It has a real cost and you have borne that cost for us, but a lot of people don't know that, and they're continuing to persist in lifestyles that are destructive and that are harmful. So help us to be courageous. Help us to, to live lives that resonate with your message. Help us to be faithful image bearers of you in the world, of the Lion of Judah that is the Lamb that was slain. Help us to walk in the power of your resurrection and let the promise of your coming kingdom sustain us uh, as we interact with all of our friends and our family and our neighbors and our coworkers and all of those people around us who do not know you, um, that we may faithfully imitate you and in a spirit of repentance and love, call them to your truth. And pray all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus. All right, thank you, everyone. Uh, we'll see you next week when we talk about chapter 12. I'm sure I'll see you Sunday as well. So.